This is They Create Worlds, Episode 90, Lion and Bally Manufacturing. One, two, three, four. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Once there was a great and wondrous game company. It has fallen away and doesn't really exist so much anymore. There's still fitness centers. And that makes a whole lot of sense for an arcade company. You (laughs) have gone from an arcade company to a video game company to a we-don't-know-what-you-are to... Welcome to your total fitness regimen. <laughs> we are, of course, talking about uh, the Bally Corporation. And uh, yes, that whole Bally Total Fitness thing, that is actually the same Bally. True story. No one knows why. Well, Alex does. I know why. Well, that's <laughs> what we pay him for. <laughs> Bally Corporation was for a long time one of the most important companies in the arcade realm. Through its subsidiaries, of course, it did get involved in video games, particularly through Midway, though a lot of its history is really tied up in other areas like pinball and slot machine and the combination of pinball and slot machines. And so this episode is going to be kind of a look back at their entire history. So it'll be a little less video gamey than some of our episodes. It'll be a bit more arcadey like some of our arcade episodes. Exactly. But it, it still, of course, all ties in because if Bally had not grown and developed and been the company that it was, then we would not have had a lot of uh, arcade video game hits uh, necessarily make it to this country in as big a way as they did. So where do we start off with them? Because they're an arcade company, I imagine they started during the wondrous age of arcades back in the early 1900s. So they don't quite go back that far, but they do date to the kind of second coming of the arcade, which was the whole uh, golden age of pinball thing that happened in the 1930s. The founder of the company, of the original company, because as we're going to see, the original company is not the same company that existed later. It's complicated. Those uh, who sat through our Williams episodes know what I'm talking about. It's going to be like Sega again all over again, isn't it? Well, it's not quite as bad as Sega (laughs) or Atari. I mean, we've done a few episodes on convoluted corporate histories. This one's more like Williams. Williams got kind of complicated there for a while, but it didn't quite reach the levels of insanity as as early Sega. But the early days of the company are fairly simple, unlike Sega's. It really starts with one individual, and that individual is Raymond Maloney. Ray Maloney was born in 1899 in Cleveland, Ohio. Midwestern boy, Irish descent. I don't know a huge amount about his early life, but I do know that he was kind of wandering here and there, doing odd jobs. I mean, he literally traveled all over the country as a young man. When I say young man, I'm talking about in in the 19-teens, so like when he was a teenager, later years of his teenage years. He just kind of wandered the country. He worked in oil fields in Texas and Oklahoma. He went out to California and harvested crops. Uh, He worked in sugar refineries in the South. I mean, he really, he literally went all over the place. 
He finally returned home and he became a steel worker at the mill where his father worked. So after everything else, he uh, ends up back home and is working in a steel mill. So he loses that job in 1921, and I don't know the circumstances of why he lost the job. Like I said, I don't know a huge amount, but uh, he had a brother-in-law in Chicago, and that brother-in-law helped him get a job at a print shop, at a printing company. That is kind of where the Bally story begins, because in addition to doing you know, stationery or letterhead or whatever kind of things printing companies or print shops were doing back then, this company was also involved in a form of gambling called a punch board. Now, was this legal gambling or illegal gambling? Well, so they they were legal at the time. I mean, they, they don't stay that way, you know, and this is the period when most of that stuff is still... Legal As the 20s go on, more and more gambling devices become illegal because, uh, of course, in the 20s you have prohibition and you have the rise of organized crime, and organized crime organizations start using slot machines and roulettes and other gambling devices as a way of laundering their money. So you really start getting that kind of anti-gambling craze as prohibition continues. But punch boards were legal. Basically, what a punch board was is it was an advent calendar that you paid for the privilege of opening a door, essentially. I mean, the punching you're doing is punching into a stiff piece of poster board or some kind of material like that. Uh, You know, you choose which uh, slot you're going to punch into, and there would be prizes inside of those punch boards. These were useful because they traveled well. They were light and could be uh, carried around. So they were often used by traveling individuals, you know, moving from town to town, offering this and that and the other thing because they were easy to carry around and the prizes were small and, you know, just another way to make a little money out there on the road. At this printing company he worked at, uh, there was another employee that he became friends with, uh, a printer by the name of Joseph Linen. L-I-N-E-H-A-N. I may be pronouncing it wrong. Maybe it's Linehan, Linen, I don't know. But something to that effect. And at some point, uh, his friend Joe actually bought the company. He uh, got together with another guy named Charles Welt, and the two of them bought this printing company that Linen and Maloney were working at together. Because Maloney and Linen were, were friends, Linen gave him some responsibility in the new company. The new company was called the... Uh, Joseph P. Linen Printing Company was named after Joe. And Ray Maloney was put in charge of the punchboard operation, the, uh, the making of these things and the shipping out of these things. So we're not in the coin-op industry yet, but we're circling the coin-op industry. Because even though punchboards are not coin-operated amusements, the same kind of people that are peddling slot machines or trade stimulators or some of these early coin-operated machines are also the same type of people that are hauling around punchboards as well. So there's a connection there. So this punchboard operation was actually given its own name. It, was, it became a subsidiary of Joseph P. Line and Printing. And they gave it the name Lion Manufacturing Company. And there's a very good reason they called it Lion. It was quite simply that one day some guy came in and ordered a bunch of letterhead for Lion Manufacturing Company and then never came to pick it up. Completely stiffed them. So they had all this letterhead lying around. 
for this lying company and nothing to do with it. So they're like, well, okay, we'll call our company Lion then. And that way, at least we can write off the, uh, the letterhead as a business expense. Well, I guess that works. Though, if the other company already exists, isn't there a conflict of interest there? Well, I mean, the other company never came back round. I mean, I, good chance that the reason they didn't pick up the letterhead is because they went out of business or decided against proceeding or any number of things. I mean, this is the wild and woolly 1920s, so you've got all sorts of little guys doing this and that and never being heard from again. Maybe Al Capone beat in the back of his head with a baseball bat. I don't know. Crazy time, Chicago and Prohibition. I've seen the untouchables. Oh, dear. Anyway, so they call it the Lion Manufacturing Company. After a time, that business must be doing pretty well because they decide to expand by actually buying one of the companies that made prizes or supplied prizes. They may not have made them, but supplied the prizes for their punch boards. And that brought them kind of even closer into this coin-op sphere because this company was presumably, and this is partially speculation, but if they were making little prizes, it probably wasn't just for punch boards, but probably also for vending machines and other coin-operated kind of things. So that moved them even further towards this coin-op industry. And so they found a second subsidiary, separate from Lion, called the Midwest Novelty Company. And the Midwest Novelty Company becomes a mail-order distributor of coin-operated products like slot machines and trade stimulators. So we've talked before about the three-tiered system within coin-op, where you have the distributor and you have the manufacturer, then you have the distributor, and then you have the operator. And we've talked a little bit about how this developed, too, because we did a whole History of Arcade episode. But what you had happening in the 1920s is you had a lot of new roads being built, and you had automobiles starting to enter more widespread use, not just as personal vehicles, but also as commercial vehicles, trucks. The 1920s was really kind of where real distribution like this started, because before that, you could really only ship things by rail, and once it arrived at the train station, then the only way you could haul stuff around was with horses and carts and all of that kind of thing. So it really wasn't conducive to try to maintain big routes of coin-operated machines in small-town America. You didn't have the last mile problem that we have today that everyone still talks about. Back then, the last mile problem was even bigger because <laughs> yeah. your most efficient way was by train, which, great, gets from point A to point B. That last quote-unquote mile is done by horse and buggy. <laughs> right. Nowadays, it's done by trucks. Right. So, I mean, in big cities, you would find arcade games everywhere. But in small-town America, you'd really only find them in big hotels and train stations and in kind of major rail hubs because you could ship the equipment to the rail hub and then, you know, you'd only place it in a couple of big places really close by because that's all that made sense. But now that you have more roads and you have more trucks, these things start spreading more around small-town America. You're still shipping into small-town America via trains, but now you can bring your truck to the train station and load everything onto the truck and then take it out to places more further afield more easily and then use your truck to drive between your locations and service things. So you get the, uh, the whole operator thing really starting to pick up in the 1920s. 
as a result of that, you also start getting kind of the first distributors kind of really springing up. And most of the early distributors were mail order because they would remain close to where the factories were and they would send out their catalogs and then you would order from them and and they would ship stuff via rail. You don't really have regional distributors yet. That comes along more in the 1930s, I think. So Midwest is a national distributor that is doing mail order. And of course, they're right there in Chicago where a lot of these machines are. So that's how Ray Maloney first really gets into coin-op, is as a distributor. So then the whole pinball thing happens. We've talked about that before, so I won't go into the big detail about that again. But kind of the turning point for pinball was when Gottlieb released Baffleball and mass-produced it using an assembly line method. Wasn't the first pinball machine, wasn't even the first popular pinball machine, but it was the first one that was manufactured in huge quantities. But we've talked before about how even though he was able to make tens of thousands of units, demand for pinball was so huge in 1931 that he was not able to keep up with demand. So Ray Maloney is a distributor, and Ray Maloney wants Baffleball because Baffleball is huge. Ray Maloney cannot get all the baffle balls that Ray Maloney wants. This makes Ray Maloney very sad. Or angry. Or sad angry? Sangry? Sangry? (laughs) So what horrible thing does he do? Well, he decides that if he can't get pinballs from Gottlieb, he'll start his own pinball manufacturing company with hookers and blackjack. And he doesn't forget about the whole thing. Oh, dear. Well, there probably weren't really hookers and blackjack, but there was a pinball manufacturing company. So he convinces Linen and Welt, who are very skeptical about this, because remember, they're printers. This whole coin-op thing is a sideline. It's a subsidiary. It's something to keep their friend Ray busy. It's not what the company does. It's a printing company. <laughs> it's Kinko's. In the 1920s. (laughs) Oh, dear. So, you know, it's like, okay, Ray, it's it's great that we're doing this this mail order business because it brings in some money and it doesn't take much of our capital or much of our effort. But you're talking about manufacturing. You're talking about getting a factory space and hiring workers and designing product. And we're a printing company. I don't think we should be doing this. And Ray's basically like, no, you don't understand. This is the biggest thing in the whole world right now. And, you know, it really kind of was. It's kind of hard to overstate how big pinball was in this period. Because, I mean, if you think about it, you know, video was big in the arcade in the 1980s, in that that golden age. And supplanted pretty much everything. Exactly. But pinball machines, if you took the total number of pinball machines sold in the 1931 to 1933 time period, it may well have been more than the number of video games that were sold in the early period of this, like, you know, the Space Invaders period, 79, 80, Space Invaders, Asteroids period. And that's in a country that has a lot smaller population. It's insane how huge it was. So Ray's basically like, this is the biggest thing ever. We don't need to stay in it forever. It's a fad. It's going to pass. So what we're going to do is we're going to get a little factory operation going, just a teeny tiny little thing, not many people. We're going to manufacture mm, $100,000 worth of pinball machines, maybe. 
which is a lot when you think about the fact that pinball machines are pretty cheap in this time period, like under $20. You know, we're going to manufacture enough machines to make, you know, make our uh, expenses back and make about $100,000 in profit, because that sounds like a lot of money in 1931, especially in the heart of the Depression. And then we'll just wrap it up. I mean, we're not on the hook for anything big. We still have the printing company. We'll just do this, this little thing. And they're like, oh, okay, I mean, I guess if you think we'll make some money, and as long as you take care of everything, fine, whatever, go ahead. Yay! <laughs> so that's how Ray Maloney gets into the pinball manufacturing business. Now, Ray Maloney is not a designer. He's a businessman. So he needs a product. He's, he's not going to be creating his own pinball table. There's some old articles and whatnot that talk about how Ray Maloney created the first product, and that's hype and corporate myth and lies. Ray Maloney didn't design the table because that's not what he is. He's a businessman. But since he's in the distribution business, he knows a lot of guys that make coin-operated amusements. He has lots of contacts, and he's right in the heart of Chicago where a lot of these people live. So he basically puts out the call because he's got the connections. He's like, I'm going to manufacture a pinball table. People, bring me something. Show me, show me, show me. So uh, two guys, Oliver Van Teel, T-Y-L, not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, and Oscar Bloom show up with a pinball table. And remember that pinball in this time is not flippers and bumpers and lights and sounds and all of that. Pinball is, here's a spring-loaded plunger. Here's some holes on a wooden board. Here's some pins. Watch as the ball moves through the pins and goes in a scoring hole. It is much more like pachinko. Exactly. So, uh, you know, they bring in a board and it looks kind of good. And Raymond is like, great, I'll take it. There's just one problem with it. It has a nice layout um, in terms of the pins and the holes and all of that stuff. But it's bland. Bland, 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 bland. No pizzazz. And this is a problem because after the success of Baffle Ball, everybody and their brother is making pinballs. Because you don't need a big factory operation to make a pinball. I mean, you'll sell more if you have a big factory operation, but pinball is such a simple game. You can get together like 12 guys in your garage and churn out a few pinball tables. So everybody is making pinballs. You need to stand out in the field here. And just a little bland, nothing much going on, design is just not going to do it for you. Not going to do it. So what does he do? Well, he's walking down the street one day, so the legend goes. And even if the legend is not quite true, it still would have happened in a somewhat similar manner to this. He's passing the news racks, and something catches his eye. A satirical magazine, very popular in this time period, called Ballyhoo. That's just the name of the magazine. And he's taking a look at the, uh, I believe it's the December 1931 issue, but somewhere around those parts. And it's got this very colorful cover design. There's nothing particularly special about it, except the fact that it's just, it's very, very colorful. So he's like, that, that right there. That's what my game should look like. And so, you know, it's the table design in terms of where all the holes go and where all the nails go and where all the slopes go of these two guys. But then he takes this Ballyhoo magazine and has an artist create a playfield in terms of the art of the playfield that's very colorful, like the magazine cover. Because he was inspired by Ballyhoo, 
he decided to name the game Ballyhoo. Ballyhoo. Now that just shows you, I mean, how different intellectual property was back then. Nowadays, if somebody was like, I'm going to make a pinball, and I'm going to call it the onion, and I'm going to make the design look like the cover of the last issue of The Onion. Not that The Onion really publishes in print anymore, but just bear with me here. Well, what's The Onion going to (laughs) do? It's going to send this friendly little cease and desist order. Exactly. But back in this day, you know, people aren't paying attention in quite the same way. So the cover is not an exact ripoff. The art's not exactly 100% the same. It's just inspired by it. But the name is 100% the same. (laughs) Nobody comes and and cares about that. So he decides to make this game Ballyhoo. Not Doctor Who, Ballyhoo. There you go. So he's got Lion, which is the punchboard company. Then, as a subsidiary of Line, they have Midwest Novelty, which is the mail-order distributor company. So now they're going to create another subsidiary to be the manufacturer of this game. The game is called Ballyhoo. So the company is going to be called the Bally Manufacturing Company. They can't do the other one. They can't do the Lion Manufacturing Company or the Lion Printing Company presents Ballyhoo. No, no. They wanted a separate trade name for the manufacturing business, probably, and this is just speculation, but probably because, remember, they were planning to do this on a limited basis only. They were going to clear $100,000 in profit, and then they were going to stop. So I don't think they wanted their other businesses to be associated directly with manufacturing because they were going to get right out of it. That's speculation, but I mean, it's logical, right? It does. It makes sense. And this is something that is very confusing. Uh, Well, I mean, it's not very confusing, but this is something that people don't often realize. So the company, and this remains true throughout the, the decades, it changes eventually, but we'll get there. Throughout the decades, Lion Manufacturing is actually the parent company. Bally Manufacturing Company is a subsidiary of Lion, and Bally is a trade name of Lion. In practical purposes, it's not a distinction that matters. It's not like the convoluted mess that is Sega, but just something that you can impress your friends at parties because they would definitely be impressed by this kind of knowledge. Trust me. Well, if we went to a fancy historical cocktail party involving a bunch of video game historians, (laughs) this is probably why I don't have friends. No, but uh, (laughs) in all seriousness... You know, it's, it's just one of those trivia things. So the company is actually the Lion Manufacturing Company, and Bally is actually a, a trade name of Lion, and uh, at times a subsidiary of, of Lion. They manufacture Ballyhoo through the Bally Manufacturing Company, and it is an absolute smash hit. It is the hit of 1932. It's, it's got the name. They do lots of advertising. They do some kind of slogan. I forget the exact slogan. I could look it up. I'm probably not going to, but I could. Aww. But, you know, their slogan was basically, what to do in 32? Ballyhoo. I mean, it's great. You know, 32 and Ballyhoo rhyme. It does. It's like a perfect storm of everything. They sell 50,000 units of this game. That's pretty darn impressive when you're considering how small the industry was then and how few locations there were to put these games in. Remember that Space Invaders, which was the hottest thing anywhere and everywhere in 
1979, there were only about 60 to 70,000 of those that were placed in the United States. And this is a period of time when the United States has more population, it has more locations. Ballyhoo in the 1930s almost did as big a business as Space Invaders did in the late 1970s, early 1980s. With a smaller population and more competition, because Space Invaders really didn't have that much competition for that kind of game, but Ballyhoo was one of hundreds of pinball games that were getting made. So, I mean, that just kind of gives you an idea of what the scope of that is, to sell 50,000 units of these things in 1932. A huge level of things to sell. (laughs) Right. Obviously, that kind of gets the partner's attention, and they're kind of like, well, okay, I guess maybe we can stay in this a little bit longer. So the whole, we're just, you know, going to manufacture for a little bit and then we're going to stop. That falls by the wayside pretty quickly here. So at this point, there are three partners in the company. You know, Maloney is the one that is really running Lion Manufacturing and Bally Manufacturing. But Lion and Welt are also partners in the business because they own the parent company of, of all of this. It's like a subsidiary within a subsidiary within a subsidiary kind of deal. But it's really Maloney's baby. The other two kind of leave him alone to do this. So, you know, that game does well. But then they have another couple of games that do really well after that. They do a game called Goofy, and then they do a game called Airway. Goofy in 32 and Airways in 33. They really start getting both national and international distribution. So they're constantly expanding their reach and proving that Ballyhoo wasn't just a fad. And this, this was kind of important. The important thing in pinball was not that Baffle Ball and Ballyhoo were big hits. The important thing in pinball is that the games that Gottlieb and Bally released after those two games were hits, because that means you didn't just have a fad or a one-hit wonder. That meant that you had something that was real and something that was sustainable. So they're doing pretty well in 32, 33, and then they make a very, very fateful decision that will affect the entire industry. And what decision is that? So we talked before about how in the 20s, a lot of these gambling machines were still very much permitted. Well, now we're in the early 1930s, and most of these gambling machines have now been outlawed. You cannot run uh, slot machines anymore, or roulette machines, or any of those kind of gambling devices. The only people still doing it are speakeasies and private clubs that are pretty illegal, and there's a good chance that whoever's running them is actually you know, working for a gangster. But this coin-operated industry that grew up legitimately around building and operating these machines still exists. And, you know, that's a high-revenue proposition, so they want some of this money. They want to get some of that gambling money. So pinball, which is right now just a harmless game... Seems like a good way to do that. So an enterprising gentleman named Herman Seiden, uh, who's not a Bally employee, but he's, he's a distributor of Bally products, decides to put a dry cell battery onto an airway table. Airway is a perfectly harmless amusement game, but Seiden is modifying it. He adds a dry cell battery and a payout slot, and he rigs the game so that 
if the ball falls into a particular hole on that play field, you get a payout from the machine. Now, remember, there is no skill in pinball at this point. I guess you get to choose how far back to pull the plunger before you launch the ball. But that's it. You can kind of, if you're careful, try to nudge the machine a little bit. Tilt mechanisms are coming in by this point, but they're not completely universal yet. So you may be able to do a little bit of bumping the machine. But once you launch that ball, it just it goes where it goes, and it falls where it falls. There's no flippers. There's nothing for the player to do to alter the course of the ball. It's a completely random game. So by adding a payout slot, this is just bringing us back to to slot machines again, just in a different form. I mean, there's no player skill. It's just a game of chance where you have a chance to earn some money. But because the law hasn't caught up to this yet, they're perfectly legal. So Sidon shows what he's done to Ray Maloney at Bally. And Maloney loves it. Because Maloney's a guy that likes to make a buck. And he's like, we gonna do this. The next game that they make is actually specifically uh, designed from the ground up to be a payout pinball machine, and it's a game called Rocket. Rocket is incredibly successful and very profitable because people just like playing games of chance for whatever reason. I mean, just go to your local casino and just watch the people mindlessly stare into a machine, inserting coins, or I guess they use cards these days, and pressing buttons. Keep gaming. That's another Simpsons reference. Yes, it is. So this game does very well. And this, this is something that the entire industry starts to do. Bally is really the leader in this. And we talked about this in some of our other historical episodes. This is kind of the beginning of how pinball starts to be linked to organized crime and linked to gambling because of these payout machines. But nobody embraces this in the pinball community as thoroughly as Ray Maloney does. Rocket is so successful that he is able to buy out his partners. Wow. Yeah. So at this point, then Maloney becomes the sole owner of the Bally Manufacturing Company and the Lion Manufacturing Company. He buys it out from the printing company. I mean, he doesn't keep the printing company thing going on, but he buys Lion. And Bally, we may recall, is a subsidiary of Lion. So the subsidiary takes over the parent. Well, it doesn't take over the parent. It buys itself out from the parent. Joseph okay. P. Line and Printing Company is the parent of the whole thing. And then he's running Lion on their behalf. Uh, and then he buys out the partners so that then Lion is just him. And then, by extension, Bally is just him. So that happens sometime between 1933 and 1935. I'm not exactly sure where in there. But somewhere in that two-year time period, he buys out the partners and becomes the sole owner of Lion Manufacturing which continues to manufacture pinball machines under the name Bally Manufacturing. So this becomes so successful that he actually gets into gambling machines. He starts making slot machines. Don't ask me. I'm, I'm not an expert on the, the law. They're not illegal everywhere. I mean, there must still be some places that they're legal. I mean, he's not doing in like an underground manufacturing operation where he's, uh, you know, there's a lot of restrictions on the use of slot machines. A lot of places have banned the use of them, but the manufacture of them is not banned. So he can make the machines and he can sell them on. And then what happens after that, uh, you know, if they're used illegally, it's not his fault. It's kind of like gun manufacturers and shootings, right? Somebody uses a gun to shoot somebody. The gun manufacturers don't get held liable for it. 
we won't get into the political debate on that, but it's just an analogy to say that, you know, just like gun manufacturer isn't illegal, even though they can be used illegally, so was slot machine manufacturer legal, even though in a lot of places you couldn't actually operate them. So in 1936, they start actually making gambling games. I'm sorry, gambling machines, not games, but just full-on slot machines and dice machines and all of this stuff. They don't really become one of the leaders in the field. They're kind of a minor player, but they're there and they're doing it alongside all the pinball stuff they're making. Now, just because they're doing the slot machine thing doesn't mean that they're getting out of pinball. They're, They're still very much in pinball. In fact, they are the not originator, but the popularizer of the bumper. That's a very important thing. Uh, And I think we talked about this in one of our evolution of this or that episodes, but as we said, you had pins and holes, and that's that's how pinball was done. Well, a, a New York company, a small New York company, not New York City, but New York State, Utica, I think, came out with a bowling themed game where instead of being a pinball with pins and holes, there were these bumpers arrayed kind of in the same pattern as uh, bowling pins would be in a bowling alley. And instead of the ball moving into a hole, the ball would navigate through these bumpers. And every time it hit one of the bumpers, uh, that bumper would light up. It had a way of sensing that it got hit, and then you'd, uh, your score would be calculated based on how many of those you hit. It, it was akin to knocking down bowling balls. So Ray Maloney, or somebody involved with Bally, I don't know which, sees this, this bumper thing from this uh, passant manufacturing company in New York, a small company that is not able to make many machines. And they're like, you know, that whole bumper thing would be great in a pinball. Because bumper was really not technically a pinball machine. So following Ray Maloney's lead, again, he didn't build it, but he's the one that said, let's do this. Engineers at Bally create a pinball table where instead of having holes, all the holes were replaced by bumpers. And every time a bumper got hit, it would increment the player's score. So this was really the beginning of the shift to something more akin to what we think of as pinball today. We don't have flippers yet, and not every game goes to bumper straight away. Bumper is kind of an anomaly in 1936, but it's the beginning of that move away from old pinball. So Bally's still very important in the traditional pinball business, even as it gets into the gambling games, but it's definitely moving in the gambling game direction. It's not sticking just with pinball and other amusements like that. So there's really not much to say about Bally over the next few years. The things that there are to say about Bally are just the same things that you could say about any of the companies during this period is pinball starts being outlawed in various places because it's been tied to gambling. World War II comes along and all game production shuts down in World War II because all of those parts and all of those factories are needed for the war effort. So Bally manufactures equipment for the United States military during the war. That takes you to kind of the post-war period. And the thing that really affected Bally in the post-war period is that the federal government got very serious for the first time about taking on the gambling industry. And we've talked about this. We certainly talked about this in our Sega episode because This federal crackdown on gambling is the exact reason that service games started looking outside of the United States and places like Japan to have all of their slot machines. So we've talked about that before, but, you know, slot machines were illegal a lot of places, but it was something that had really mostly been left to the states 
to decide if they wanted machines illegal or not and enforce the laws. But after the war, the federal government decided to get involved under the Commerce Clause because they're allowed to regulate interstate commerce and outlaw the uh, transport of gambling devices to any state where they were illegal. So, as I said before, you know, making the machines perfectly legal. Nothing wrong with that. Transporting the machines was also perfectly legal. It only became illegal when you set it up someplace and told people, here, give me some money and pull that lever. That's the moment it became illegal. So, it was really impossible to crack down on slot machines very easily because you couldn't stake out the factories and seize them in transit or stake out the railroad stations or the airports or wherever and seize them in transit. You had to actually catch them being used on a premises for illegal means before you could actually prosecute somebody. Now, was there a way to actually use them legally on a premises? See, I don't think there was, probably. So, I mean, I guess the answer to that would be if you didn't charge someone money to use it, right? So, like, if you're just like, I like it when pretty wheels spin before my eyes, so I'm buying a slot machine just so I can take it home and pull the lever and watch those pretty wheels spin, 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 spin. I guess that wouldn't be illegal, right? (laughs) You know. I guess not, or maybe have it set up where you can play them, but it doesn't do a payout? Yeah, that was kind of a gray area. But they were really kind of cracking down on that, too. In fact, you know, here's, here's another fun fact. You know how fruit are prevalent on a lot of slot machines? Yes. Yeah, well, the, the reason for that, which you may or may not know, is after people started looking down on cash payouts, they were like, these machines are not used for cash payouts. When somebody lines up a row of objects, we give them a nice piece of candy. and so. Those different combinations of fruits just tell us what flavor of candy the person has won. So bar means you get a chocolate bar. <laughs> banana means you get chocolate-covered bananas. <laughs> Cherry means like you get that. a milkshake. <laughs> and, of course, what they were really doing is, you know, you'd get your quote-unquote prize, and then you'd go to the counter next door and give them their prize, and then you'd get your money. I mean, so, you know, so they kind of cracked down on that, too. So even operating them in a quote-unquote free play mode or a quote-unquote alternate cheapo prize mode was really, by this point, pretty much outlawed as well because the authorities knew that they weren't really operating on a free play or they weren't really giving away candy or (laughs) fruit as prizes. They were going around the corner. You know, that's how the Japanese pachinko market went on for decades. And law enforcement kind of looked the other way. They kind of decided that that was the way they would coexist. But, you know, pachinko machines, uh, when you get ball in, in the hole, what it does is it spits out a bunch of other balls. And then at the end of the game, you have this tray full of metal balls. And then what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to collect all those metal balls in the tray, go around the corner to the counter on the cross street and be like, I got all these metal balls. And then, and then, and then you exchange them for the cash prize. So they're, they're a substitute for the, for the monetary payout. Uh, so, you know, it's just one of those weird loopholes in the law. Um, you know, so the operation of the machines was illegal. But the manufacture of the machines was not illegal, and the transport of the machines was not illegal. 
I think it's one of those things where that was kind of the equilibrium that people were happy to live with for a time. It's like, well, you know, if the operation's illegal, you can't just have them out in your shop, right? Because the beat cop will walk by your shop and he'll see it in the window and will be like, we have to confiscate it. You know, I think there was a powerful enough lobby or whatever that they, they didn't really want the slot machine to completely go away. They just wanted it to be mostly out of sight. And so by making the operation illegal, it meant that only a very small number of people could actually successfully operate them in back rooms and speakeasies and whatnot. But by making the transport and manufacture still legal, you're not really shutting down the industry. <laughs> Whatever changed, and I'm not an expert on the history of organized crime or on government efforts to stamp out organized crime, so I couldn't tell you what changed in the late 1940s, early 1950s, but clearly something did. Because in 1951, the United States Congress does pass the, the Johnson Act, named for the sponsor of the bill. It has an official government name, but everyone just calls it the Johnson Act, which made it a federal offense to transport gambling devices to any place where they were illegal. At the time, there were kind of two and a half places where slot machines were legal. Nevada, because the whole Las Vegas thing and the whole Reno thing, that was already a thing that was happening. So slot machines were legal in Nevada. Idaho, of all places, had legal slot machines at the time. It was only a period of about three or four years that they were legal. It was an experiment, and this experiment just happened to fall right at the time when the Johnson Act was passed, where they were like, well, we'll see about legalizing the machines, and it was such a disaster <laughs> that they made them illegal again very shortly after. And then the state of Maryland, I say two and a half, because they weren't legal in Maryland. But Maryland left the decision up to individual counties instead of doing it statewide. So some counties in the state of Maryland voted to allow slot machines and other counties didn't. So there were kind of two and a half states where they were legal. And those were the only places that you could ship slot machines to. If you were transporting slot machines anywhere else, then that was now illegal. So that did a good number on the industry, especially since right after that happened, two years after that, so 1953, the state of Illinois, which is where basically every slot machine was manufactured, the state of Illinois outlawed the manufacture of slot machines. So between that act, the Illinois Act, and the Federal Johnson Act, that put the majority of the slot machine companies out of business. There were a couple of companies that moved down to Nevada because Nevada didn't outlaw the manufacture of slot machines, and Nevada was where all the slot machines were being sold anyway. <laughs> so there was a small amount of slot machine production still happening in Nevada, but that pretty much did it for the slot machine industry. And Bally actually got out of the industry a couple of years before this happened. Bally stopped making slot machines in 1949. I mean, by that time, it was already clear, I think, which way the wind was blowing. And, you know, Bally had other business areas in coin-operated games, so they wouldn't have wanted to run into trouble with, with that area. So they got out of the business in 1949. But Ray Maloney didn't really want to get out of the gambling business because it's a profitable business. His guys came up with a new kind of pinball machine in 1951. The flipper? No, 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 no. Aww. So just to put things in context, uh, it's good you bring up the flipper, because just to put this all in context, by 1951, the flipper had been around for several years. It first appeared in 1947. 
and the pop bumper first appeared in 1948. That's, you know, a bumper that bounces the ball around more violently with more force than bumpers before that. So pinball is now morphing into more of a game of skill. Maloney, what he does and what his engineers do, is they take some of that away and bring it closer to a game of chance again, a gambling game again. And they invent, essentially, there was technically one table that was similar to this before they did it because nobody who did things first ever really did things first. But for the sake of our story, they developed a new kind of pinball table called a bingo machine. So what they did is no flippers, no bumpers, no pins. All you have is a play field that has holes in the configuration of a bingo card. And you have your plunger and you have your pin, your little metal ball. And you're launching balls onto that play field and you're just hoping that they make a bingo. You know, there's no way for you to influence this. It's, there's no flippers. There's no nothing. It's just you're hoping that you get a bingo out of what you're doing. And, of course, if you get a bingo, well, you get a prize. Fabulous prizes. Oh, goody. So they're back. <laughs> Gambling is back. I mean, again, it's kind of under the table. It's like, well, you know, I mean, it, it didn't do a payout itself, you see. It's not that if you got a bingo, you know, like games like Rocket, games like the payout pinballs that were happening in the 30s, you know, they actually had a payout tray uh, just like a slot machine would. So there's no payout mechanism in a bingo because it's a, you know, it's a fun game. There's no prizes. Now, if some shop owner decides that they're going to reward a prize for a bingo, well, that's on them. We, we didn't tell them to do that. This here's just a fun, happy game. People like bingo. Bingo's not illegal. Yet. <laughs> so, yeah. But it didn't violate the Johnson Act. The Johnson Act outlawed slot machines. It outlawed roulette machines. It outlawed crane machines. And it may have outlawed a couple of other kinds of things, but it did not discuss pinball at all. It didn't discuss bingo at all. So a bingo pinball was legal under the Johnson Act, and that allowed them to keep this lucrative business they had going. And they were not the only company that made bingo machines, but they were the biggest company that made ping, pinball, uh, bingo pinball machines, and that was kind of their bread and butter. Well, the law did catch up. Uh, there was actually a Supreme Court case uh, in 1957, and the Supreme Court ruled that a pinball machine like a bingo machine that was a game of chance that was really designed to award payouts was, in fact, a gambling device and should fall under the Johnson Act. Pinball itself then, after that, almost became entirely illegal because then in, in the late 50s, the Congress was looking to expand the Johnson Act to cover the new types of machines that had shown up in the meantime. And in the House of Representatives in 1962, they actually decided to outlaw all pinball machines, the transport of all pinball machines, in their revision to the Johnson Act. Once it reached the Senate, uh, there was a compromise. The Senate didn't go for that. There was probably enough of a lobby being like, no, please don't. They did modify the bill to outlaw payout pinball machines, uh, games of chance specifically designed to give a payout, but they did not outlaw all pinball. Bingo machines were basically done after about 1957 or so. 
now Bally was going to have to look for a new way to go about continuing to uh, do gambling-style machines, this cat-and-mouse game going on and on and on. But then in 1958, something very unfortunate happens. Ray Maloney, who at this time is just 58 years old, because it's before his birthday, suddenly dies of a heart attack out of nowhere. I mean, you know, he wasn't ill. He wasn't 500 pounds. I mean, you know, coin-op is a stressful job as a side note. You, you don't know how many times in the trades, especially in the 70s and 80s, there'd be notices, uh, so-and-so died of a heart attack. It's a stressful business because, you know, it's a cash-only business and you're usually just a few dollars ahead of, <laughs> of bankruptcy, so... A lot of people die of heart attacks, or at least used to. It may be different now, but a lot of people used to die of heart attacks in that field. And in February 1958, it was Ray Maloney's turn. Well, this this was a problem because, I mean, he was the guiding force behind the company. He was the guy that always kind of pointed out the new directions to go. He's the one that got them into pinball and then got them into payout pinball, got them into slot machines, got them into bingo machines. I mean, he's he's not the designer. He's not a creative genius, but he keeps finding those niches that Bally should get into to keep growing the company. And now he's gone. And worse, because it was a sudden death, he had not put his affairs in order. So it wasn't exactly clear what should happen to all of his assets upon his death. And that included his company, (laughs) which he was the sole proprietor of. Welcome to probate court. (laughs) Right. So, Lion Manufacturing, and then, of course, its Bally subsidiary, is actually put into a trust administered by a Chicago-area bank. So, now you have a bank making all of the decisions for the company. The bank installs a new president, a longtime employee of the company named Joseph Fleisch, and the bank installs a new board... So it's not that the the bank is like running the day-to-day of the company, but the bank, as the trustee, has final say over anything that the company does. So they'd really come to define themselves on their bingo pin products. They weren't doing regular pinball anymore, really. Gottlieb, Williams, they were doing regular flippers, bumpers, happy fun time pinball. Bally kind of stopped doing that when they were getting involved in all this gambling stuff. So they had some shuffle alleys and they were doing some kiddie rides, but their main area of uh, activity was the bingo pinballs. And now the bingo pinballs were outlawed. And now Ray Maloney was gone. They didn't have their kind of leader who was always moving them on to new and better things. Lion started losing money and it wasn't entirely clear how they were going to be able to stop losing money. Now, some changes were starting to happen that were very positive for Bally. Illinois, after much lobbying, decided to repeal its law on the manufacture of slot machines. Nevada was becoming a bigger and bigger destination, particularly Las Vegas, for individuals that were looking to gamble. So there was a pretty lucrative market in particularly Las Vegas, but also Reno and some some other smaller Nevada towns. There was a pretty lucrative market out there for slot machines. And this market was very starved because in World War II, of course, all slot machine production stopped. Everything stopped, (laughs) you know. And then the bans, the Illinois ban and the Johnson Act, happened 
pretty quickly after World War II ended. So a lot of the slot machines in Nevada were still operating on pre-war technology. They were really out of date. But the popularity was increasing and increasing and increasing, so there was an opportunity here for a savvy company to come up with a new, more modern slot machine design and just run the board in the state of Nevada on slot machines. Ray Maloney's sons, as I said, this guy Joseph Fleisch became the president at first, but then after a couple of years, there was a transition. Ray Maloney had two sons, Ray Jr. and Donald. And so after two years, about 1960, the two of them took over the company, but still being administered by the trust. So that Chicago bank is still there. So the two of them want to get the company back into the slot machine business because the Illinois law has been repealed. They start an R&D effort to create the first electromechanical slot machine. All the slot machines before that were basically just mechanical. So there were two key things that an electromechanical slot machine could do that a mechanical, a pure mechanical slot machine could not. One is that it could do more interesting payout combinations. You know, you really couldn't do anything on the old mechanical slot machines, and I'm sure there are exceptions to this. I'm not an expert on slot machines, but for the purpose of our discussion, we're going to say it's this way. You know, on those old three-reel slot machines, all you could really do is give a payout if they lined up three reels of the same type, you know, in in a row (laughs) kind of thing. The tradition, what we think of as a slot machine. But with an electromechanical machine that has the capability to kind of record more states, you can do uh, diagonals. You know, you can have a bigger play field and you can have, uh, you know, connect three this way and it also works or connect two here and have this show up here and it works. So you can do a lot more flexibility in payout schemes. And, you know, the more opportunities that a person thinks they have to win, even if their odds have not actually changed in a material way, if they think they have more chances to win, they're more likely to put a coin in the machine. The other thing that mechanical machines were limited in is because there was no circuitry involved, they were limited in the size of their coin hoppers. You just couldn't keep a lot of coins in there or coins of different denominations in there because you didn't have all of the machinery, electric uh, machinery that made it easy to dispense coins in various combinations. I'm not a technical guy, but I'm told this is, this is true. So what that meant is if you won a big jackpot, like a really, really big one, one of those stereotypical ones that you see in the movies where suddenly there's a million quarters spilling out of that machine and everyone gets all excited usually used as distractions in heist movies. If you had a payout like that in the pre-electromechanical days, all those coins would not actually be in that machine. Instead, you'd call an attendant over, or you'd go over to the attendant and say, look, I, I got this and I'm owed this much, and that attendant would give you like a slip, a signed slip or whatever, saying so-and-so has won X amount of money from this machine. And then you'd go up to the cash window and you'd present your slip, and then you'd get your reward. Well, if you want someone to keep gaming, what's the worst thing you can do with that person? Get them up and going away from the machine. Exactly. (laughs) So generally what would happen is if somebody would win that big jackpot, 
it would feel like a climactic moment. It would feel, I have done my duty for today. I'm going to go collect my winnings, and I am going to leave this facility. We do not want you to do that, Mr. Jones. We would like you to sit there and continue to take that winning that you just had and go in for the potential of a new winning. What would God say? He wants you to keep gaming. (laughs) That one's going in the show notes. (laughs) Yeah, I think it will have to now, yes. So, um, by allowing for larger payouts and more flexible payouts, the machine could just pay out the big jackpots and you wouldn't have to go anywhere and you could collect your winnings and then you could just keep sitting there and start putting all your winnings back in the machine again. So there were a lot of reasons why an electromechanical machine could bring in a great deal more money per machine than an old school mechanical machine could. So the company that introduced the first electromechanical slot machine to the market was going to be in a position to make a boatload of money. And Ray Jr. and Donald wanted that to be them and wanted that to be Bally. But remember, they're controlled by a bank that has final say over everything they do. Bank sees this and is like, slot machines are run by organized crime. We are not authorizing a company that we have say over to make machines that are going to be used by organized crime. Not going to happen. You get nothing. Good day. Now, the reason the entire bank gets to say is because they administer the trust. Right. The estate is in this weird limbo state where it's in trust, and the estate has a lot of debts, and... The trust has to figure out how to satisfy all of the debtors. The trust is going to basically stay in existence until all of the creditors are are satisfied and the estate can be fully disposed of. Because Ray Maloney left kind of a mess because he died suddenly. He didn't have his affairs in order at all. (laughs) So, right, it's legal to make the slot machines. And, you know, if if it was just Ray Jr. and, and Don and they were the decision makers, they could go right ahead and make their own slot machine factory with blackjack and hookers. Well, the hookers would probably be illegal, but, you know. But the bank has final say, and the bank does not want to be associated with a business that it considers to be one very teensy-weensy, itsy-bitsy step away from organized crime. So the bank says, no, you're going to have to figure out another way to turn this company around. And there just wasn't another way to turn the company around, to be quite simple. So the company's losing money. The company's in debt. The estate's in debt. Bank is like, well, we gave you several years to turn this company around. That's pretty generous, really. The company is not turned around. It is time to liquidate. We're just going to get whatever we can for whatever you got and use that money to satisfy the debts of the estate. So Bally, at this point, almost disappeared. But at the last moment, it was saved. And it was saved by uh, one of its own employees the head of sales, a person by the name of Bill O'Donnell. Bill O'Donnell was a high school dropout, not because of lack of ambition or lack of academic ability, but because his father died when he was 17 in the Depression. And so young Bill O'Donnell had to leave school so he could go to work. He became a laborer, a construction worker at his father's Not his father's company. His father didn't own it, but at the company where his father had been a foreman 
the underground construction company. And he helped build the uh, Chicago subway system. <laughs> One whack of the pickaxe at a time or, or whatever, <laughs> you know, not the most glamorous work. He uh, enlisted in the Marines, served in the Pacific during World War II. When he came back, uh, he got a job as a postal worker initially, but he had a cousin who just happened to be Ray Maloney's bookmaker, his gambling guy. So his cousin arranged for him to get a job at Bally, at Line Manufacturing. O'Donnell's a hard worker and he's a smart guy. I mean, you know, like I said, he didn't drop out of high school because he was a, a reprobate. So he goes in in the purchasing department, but somehow, and I don't know, I don't know the details, uh, but somehow he catches Ray Maloney's eye. Ray Maloney notices him, and Ray notices something in him, and kind of takes him under his wing. He kind of becomes Ray Maloney's protege, and he becomes the uh, assistant sales manager of the company. And then in 1951, Maloney promotes him to be the head of sales, the, the actual sales manager. So, uh, you know, he's grown to a powerful position in the company. When Ray Maloney dies, he's still there, of course, and he gets named to the board of directors of the company by the, the bank, because the bank's reconstituting a new board and a new this and new that. Uh, and since he's one of the more critical officers in the company, they actually name him to the new board when Ray Maloney dies. So O'Donnell is very aware of what's going on because he sits on the board of the company. He knows all the ins and outs of how the company's about to die. And he's given a lot of his professional life to the company now. I mean, it's, it's only been, you know, a decade and a half, but I mean, that's been pretty much his whole professional life. And he was Ray Maloney's protege. Uh, you know, he, he genuinely loved the business and he did not want to see that business go away. So he decided that he would arrange a management buyout led by him of the company. So the bank gets its money, it's satisfied, it doesn't have to liquidate, and then he gets to, to control the company. Well, there's just one problem. I mean, he's not a millionaire. He can't just throw down the several million dollars that the bank's looking for to take the company off of their hands. So he needs to get a loan from a bank. Now... The bank that owns Lion, or not owns Lion, but is administering the trust within which Lion is, is included, has not let the company manufacture slot machines because it's one step away from organized crime. So what do you think other area banks said when Bill O'Donnell was like, I need a loan for some money so I can buy this company so I can start making slot machines? No, 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 go away, no. Yes, pretty much. So this is where things get complicated, only briefly complicated. O'Donnell needs money, and he's not going to be able to get it from banks or from financial institutions that generally loan capital. So he's going to have to get it from some other sources, and those other sources come back to bite him in the ass later on, as we'll see. He decides that he will turn to the company's distribution network to see if he can raise enough money through them. Because Ballet's a coin-operated company, it has distributors in this three-tiered system. The distributors rely on Bally product to stay in business. So the distributors have a very strong incentive to make sure that Bally does not go away, or that Lion does not go away. And, you know, some of the distributors, a lot of distributors are very small companies that don't have any money, but there are a few distributors out there that are loaded. And uh, it's in their best interest that Bally continues so they can stay being loaded. So he goes to the distributors. And one distributor agrees to come on board 
uh, you know, they're not, this isn't going to be loans at this point. It's it's going to be a consortium. Any Anyone that comes in as part of this is going to put up some money as part of the buyout, and then they're going to get shares in the company. So one distributor decides to get involved, and that's a distributor called Runyon Sales in New Jersey. Runyon Sales is ostensibly operated by two gentlemen named Abe Green and Barnett Sugarman, but they are actually only a front. And uh, there's some question about how much O'Donnell knew, but he honestly, it looks like he honestly probably didn't know this. They are actually frontmen for a guy named Jerry Katina. Jerry Katina is the head of the Genovese crime family. That could be bad. <laughs> right. So one of the major sources that O'Donnell is using in order to buy Lion is organized crime. In order to make slot machines that are totally not illegal for organized crime. Right, but he's a silent partner. Katina's a silent partner in the business. You know, he fronts the money to Runyon Sales and he gets a take from Runyon Sales, but he's a silent partner. He's not managing. He's not on the, he's not on the publicly available documents. So, I mean, O'Donnell honestly probably didn't know that Katina was part of this. So that's the first people to come on board is these two guys from Runyon Sales. They bring in a pool table manufacturer from Brooklyn named Irving Kay. He owns one of the larger pool manufacturing companies, pool table manufacturers. Remember, pool tables are coin-operated amusements too, because uh, especially in this time period, a lot of pool tables are coin-operated where you don't have to bother an attendant for anything. You just put a coin in the slot and it releases the balls, and then you can play your game of pool. So Irving Kay gets in on it. They also bring in another guy by the name of Sam Klein. Klein was another guy uh, that had been involved in the coin-op business, except he was involved in the uh, vending machine business. He had uh, purchased a Cincinnati vending machine company back in 1954 called Stern, and he ran that until 1960. And then in 1960, he sold the business to a company called Imprise Corporation, which was uh, run by a guy named Lou Jacobs, who was primarily involved in, like, stadium food vending and areas like that. This Lou Jacobs guy also got his business through kind of shady means, and he kind of sort of has ties to organized crime, and to Jerry Katina, who we just mentioned before. So when Klein sold his business in 1960 to Jacobs, Jacobs made Klein his agent to go out and see if he could find similar kinds of companies, you know, using his coin-op contacts and whatnot, that Jacobs could buy, because Jacobs was thinking of building some kind of distribution empire. Uh, he didn't actually end up doing it, but for a period here, he was thinking of doing it. So Klein goes around, and Klein actually gets in with Jerry Katina, and almost does a deal with Katina. Like I said, it doesn't work out, but he and Katina actually remain friendly after this. They actually remain associates professionally and personally after this, which is why Sugarman and Barnett know him, and which is why they bring him in to finance a portion of the deal, too, because Klein's got a lot of money from when he sold his company. He sold his company for $1.5 million, so he's kind of loaded, so they bring him in as another guy who has money, but he's another guy that has ties to organized crime. Klein brings Jacobs in who also kind of sort of has ties to organized crime. Sounds like a lot of crime. 
Yeah, so this is gonna this is gonna become a thing. We'll get back to that eventually. But between all of these guys, Sugarman and Green at Runyon Sales with their secret benefactor Katina, Irving Kay with the pool table company, Sam Klein with his own private wealth, and Lou Jacobs from his business, together they get enough money together to purchase the company. So they found an organization called KOS Enterprises. And I presume the K, the O, and the S are probably Klein, O'Donnell, and Sugarman. But KOS Enterprises is formed, and in June 1963, they don't purchase the entire company. Basically, at this point, the bank is liquidating the company, as they had planned to do. But what they do is they buy a good chunk of the assets of Lion Manufacturing, and they buy the rights to use the Bally name. And so KOS Enterprises then changes its name to Lion Manufacturing and continues to market machines under the name Bally. So it's technically at this point a different company. It's not the same company that Ray Maloney founded back in uh, you know, 1932. But for all intents and purposes, it's the same company. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's just different on paper. But they're still Lion, and they're doing business as Bally. That purchase is for $2.85 million, so it's not cheap. $2.85 million in early 1960s money, that's a lot of money. O'Donnell becomes the president of the new company. Klein, uh, who's actually the largest shareholder of the company, he brought the most money to the table, he becomes the executive vice president of the company. The other partners don't really, like, join the company per se, but they all have shares in the company and they all have input. Some of them are probably on the board. And we have a new line manufacturing. And line manufacturing is now free to do whatever the heck it wants in slot machines. And it can make all of the slot machines it wants. <laughs> That's right. Basically, again, Bally is not a company that is necessarily good at the technology side of things. They're just the company that has good contacts and knows people that are able to do things for them. There's a guy out in Vegas named Mickey Wachinski. And uh, Wachinski is knee-deep with the mob, actually, quite frankly. I mean, he actually becomes a pit boss at the Sands, and the Sands is owned by the mob. The mob isn't in Vegas anymore, because Vegas did clean it up. But in this period of time, if you were involved in Vegas casinos, you were working for the mob, and everybody knew it. It wasn't, like, a secret. <laughs> Wachinski, because he had some money, because he was working as the pit boss at the casino, he was well-paid, he would support people developing new machines on the side. So he actually supported a couple of guys named Jack Lavinia and Doc Kaufman, who were creating a new roulette table in about 1957 or so. And they're actually the ones that came up with this new form of hopper that was electromechanical and would allow the machines to give the big payoffs, as I was talking about before. When we talk about electromechanical slot machines, the main thing that changed initially was that payout hopper. So. They put this together, and the roulette table doesn't do very well. But that hopper is clearly something that's worth carrying on in other machines. And it just so happens that Doc Kaufman, in addition to making machines, all of these guys are kind of interrelated in these little businesses, is also serving as the Bally distributor for Southern Nevada. Bally has two distributors in the state. They have a Northern Nevada distributor, which basically means supplying Reno. And they have a Southern Nevada distributor, which basically means Las Vegas. So Kaufman is also the Bally slot machine distributor in Vegas, or coin-operated distributor in southern Vegas. 
So he takes this hopper back to Bally and is like, this is a really cool thing. You should incorporate it into something. And that's what got the Maloney's on this whole idea of we're going to build an electromechanical slot machine and we're going to make lots of money. So now that O'Donnell's in control of the company, he can do this. They build some prototype machines. Uh, they convert some old mechanical machines to this new hopper, build some prototypes. At first, they, they run into trouble because, you know, new machines have to be licensed to be sold. And there is a gaming commission in Nevada. And at first, they're unable to sell any of the games there. It's newfangled technology. The gaming commission, I think, is hesitant on this new technology and what it might mean. So they're like, no, you can't sell these here. So they actually end up selling them in Britain first. And a distributor in Britain named Cyril Shack falls in love with these things and starts importing them by the plane load, which is pretty darn expensive back then. I mean, air freighting is expensive now, but it was really expensive back then. But he immediately saw how important an innovation this was going to be. So he's the one that gives them the funding that they need to keep the company going. Uh, and he also is the one that suggests a name for it, because right now it's just going by the generic number designator 742A. That's, that's the model number. And so he suggests the name Money Honey. It has a nice ring to it. And I want to get some money, honey. Exactly. So, I mean, you know, we're not slot machine guys, uh, you or I. And uh, most of our listeners are probably not slot machine guys either. But Money Honey is the space invaders of slot machines. It's the Pac-Man of slot machines. It's the Super Mario Brothers of slot machines. Maybe it's all three of those games even all rolled into one. I don't know. This is the model that completely revolutionizes the slot machine industry. Bally gets that out there before any other competitors had any idea of doing electromechanical slot machines. And Money Honey takes over Nevada. By 1968, Bally has 94% of the slot machine market in the state of Nevada. And remember, at this point, Nevada really is the only place it's legal. Idaho is no longer legal. Uh, at this point, Maryland has banned them as well. Atlantic City doesn't exist yet. So Nevada is the only place in the entire United States where slot machines are legal. And they now have 94% of the market. That's pretty amazing to have it that high. Yeah, and you know, what, what they basically do is, I mean, like I said, these machines are so much better at keeping people playing that casino profits using electromechanical machines were sometimes rising as much as 400% just by switching to electromechanical machines. So that right there, if at a 400% return on investment, it's worth it for me to switch out my machines easily. Exactly. So, you know, they had the two distributors. They had Cyred in northern Nevada, and they had this Kaufman guy in southern Nevada. What these guys would do, they'd go to a casino and say, I've got this new slot machine. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you three or four of these. I want you to put them on your floor for you know, two weeks, 30 days, whatever they say, free of charge. At the end of that time, I'm going to come back and we're going to we're going to see how many of these babies you want. And so, of course, in that period of time when they're on the floor, they just take in obscene amounts of money. So then when they come back around to make a deal, they're like, yeah, we'll replace our whole floor with them, <laughs> you know. And so they very quickly get 94 percent of the market. Profits shoot through the roof. And at this point, O'Donnell realizes that he thinks he can take the company public. In 1968, O'Donnell decides that they are going to go public. No coin-op company has ever gone public before, period. Coin-op companies in this period of time are still frowned upon and still looked upon as potential agents of organized crime. And not like people would be wrong about that, especially in this case. Right. The SEC took a really, really long and hard look at them. 
before allowing them to go public. You know, like I said, they're rife with these like indirect ties to organized crime, but the SEC doesn't discover any of that for whatever reason. I mean, they are indirect links. It's not like Bally is actually taking payments directly from the mob or funneling money that they're making directly to the mob. So I think mostly what the SEC was probably looking at is they were probably looking at what money was coming into the company and what money was leaving the company and making sure that it didn't look like money was being laundered or was being shunted off into bank accounts controlled by organized crime or something. I don't think they were looking so much at the partners as they were looking at the money. So the SEC keeps them on hold for a year as they investigate them. But at the end of the year, they declare that Lion has a clean bill of health and that Lion can go public on the stock exchange. So on... March 13th, 1969, Bally becomes the first publicly traded coin-op company ever. At this point, they officially change their name. Whether it's because the lion name they feel is tainted or because they feel that everyone knows them as Bally already because all their machines have the name Bally on it, at this point, the company officially changes its name from Lion Manufacturing to Bally Manufacturing. So this is the point where the whole lion thing goes away once and for all. We're just Bally now. This is really the the height of success. They have all the slot machine market. They're still making coin-operated amusements. They're not as big in coin-operated amusements. They've gotten back into conventional pinball now that the bingo machines are illegal, but they're third place in pinball. Gottlieb's number one. Williams is number two. Bally is, is a distant third. But they're still there. They're publicly traded. And the sky's the limit. But as we'll see, with, within a decade, unfortunately, it all goes very wrong for our friend Mr. O'Donnell. Not so much for Bally, but for Mr. O'Donnell personally. And that is the subject we will begin with in part two of this look at the Bally Manufacturing Corporation. All right. Bally, the road to fitness, I guess. Next time on <laughs> They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.daycreateworlds.com, where we have linked to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's forthcoming book will be released through CRC Press. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCWpodcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 